Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Munro, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the chef, cook, columnist and writer Mira Soda. This is really exciting for me because in another life I would have definitely gone into food in some way, although my ambitions as a cook usually exceed my skills. And weirdly, I think Mira might have been a jewellery maker. But more about that later, I hope. Apologies, because I've assumed that you already know all about Mira. That's because she's such a household name round at Munro Towers. We're always like, oh, what do you fancy for supper tonight? Mira soda, and then everyone's happy. So I feel like you're a foodie, but just in case you're not, and I'm making assumptions, Mira is a chef. I'm saying chef and a cook. And she's a food writer and an author. We haven't chatted to a chef before, and it's something that I really enjoy. And actually, Mira's reply was so completely lovely. And she said yes, and she has some fabulous pieces of jewellery for us to look at. So I'm really looking forward to this. So here we are, round at Mira's house. We haven't got Blueberry the dog with us, but we've got Connie and some delicious mint tea that Mira's made. This is such a treat. So it's with the greatest of pleasure that I can say hello and welcome to This Is A Token to Mira Soda. banana cake I forgot to offer you so I'm sorry <laughs> would you like what some? are you going to do are you going to come round to Mira Soda's house and say no to banana cake like, <laughs> like I'm definitely not going to say no to banana cake you have a banana plant there coming up your pot I do I've got one in my design studio on the top floor and it's huge it's like Six foot tall. Wow. It's taken over the whole room, but I love them. Oh, lucky you. I have never received a banana yet from my banana tree, but no. it did do that wonderful thing where the mother became the daughter. That's kind of what happens. I don't know enough about the life cycle of banana trees. I've got little ones coming out from the bottom yeah. of the pot, where the big one, and the big one's gone quite yellow. I think it was because it was in full sunlight for too long. Uh-huh. But maybe it's time. Here's one thing that I know about bananas, which most people don't realise, is that they grow upside down. Have you seen how they grow? No. There's an enormous stem that comes off that looks quite rude. And then the bananas grow off the stem. So the bit that's the stem is actually sort of growing off it. And the black bit of the banana yes. that we consider to be the bottom of the banana is actually the top of the banana. They grow like, like up rather than down. Up yeah. rather than down. And it's also much easier to open the banana from the black bit. I know this because I used to work for a, um, Innocent Drinks, a smoothie company. Yes. Bananas were hand processed in the factory and so you could peel like the most amount of bananas. Did you literally stand there opening bananas yeah. as your sort of... Of course. No, 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 no. This, this, I was going to say, this sounds you know, like those stories of Japanese sword makers who go, you know, for the first five years, I will allow you to carry the water up the hill to make the tea for the sword maker. And then for the next five years, you'll be able to make the tea for the sword maker. And then, and then after that, after you've done those 10 years, you'll finally yeah. be able to work with the sword maker sort of thing. Yeah, firstly, you have to peel the bananas yes. for 10 years. And then, you and then you're allowed to... Become a smoothie maker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we nutri every morning. 
And then Connie gets across with me because every morning I go, have you had your smoothie yet, Connie? And yeah, lots of fussing. Oh, you're going to be late. You make sure you have your breakfast. And basically, I mother you, right? And then you get... It is so again. nice to come back, though. Right. Sorry, we've digressed a bit. <laughs> Will you just... Sorry, Mira. Can you just explain your upbringing? Because your parents, they were Ugandan-Indian. There were so many Indians brought over to Uganda by the British government. And Uganda was sort of pitched as this land of opportunity. Um, people were offered British passports. And um, so I'm Gujarati. Gujarat's a state on the west coast of India. And Gujaratis are renowned for being um, entrepreneurs. Creative, hardworking, hardworking people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so they went over there from Gujarat to Uganda and they set up all sorts of businesses because they had the creative freedom to be able to do that. And... So my grandfather was a self-made man, very proud and very entrepreneurial. He set up Kenya's first printing press, a Coca-Cola bottling factory. And at one point he was in business with the Tilda brothers of Tilda Rice uh, fame, squeezing orange juice and bottling that. My grandfather was self-made and suddenly they became quite rich in Uganda. They were thrown out of Uganda by the crackpot dictator Idi Amin. Was that kind of like a jealousy thing? So so in the way that dictator leaders have done over the years isn't it you can target a part of the population that are doing really well particularly if they've come from somewhere else and that makes an easy hate campaign doesn't it to yeah, definitely. And and you can see that the Ugandan Indians are doing really well. And the way that the British government had set things up in Uganda, there was like an area where all the white people lived, where all the Indians lived. And then um, the natives, native Ugandans were, you know, segregated. And so you can see how there was animosity building. And Idi Amin thought that, um, you know, the Indians were retaining all of this money. And so he, he gave them all, all 60,000 Ugandans, uh, Ugandan Asians, 90 days to leave before on pain of death. And so they had to leave behind their homes and their friends, all of their money, cars, you know, you name it, businesses, etc. They just had to leave it all behind and get on a plane and get out of there. And your grandparents or parents chose to come to the UK? So they had British passports. Yeah. And the Brits did organise like an amazing rescue mission. So that's why they came over here. Just in the same way that's happening with Afghanistan at the moment, there was an allocation here in the UK. There was, you know, there was an allocation in Canada, in America, in India. And across the world, each country was just looking at how many Ugandan Asians can we we settle here? It sounds like we're just in the middle of this awful crisis where people are having to uproot their lives and some people won't be able to. Yeah. So sort of history just keeps... Repeating itself. It does. It does. Um, I guess they were lucky, though, in that they were told to leave rather than told to yeah, stay. Yeah. At least they had 90 days, I guess. But that's yes. not much time if you're running. It's not. And... It's not. And then and, and things also started to become quite lawless from what yeah. my parents tell me. And, yeah. you know, they had one suitcase for a family of five. And my grandfather came here with 50 pounds in his pocket. I mean, they did have gold on them, of course, but um, sort of squirreled away in bras and pants and things like that. Yeah, but it's still upheaval. It's still yes, and, totally. You know, if you arrived at Heathrow with 50 quid in your pocket, you'd have some yeah, problem, I right? Imagine. Like, leave everything. And start again. And yeah. Start a new life. I know. Well, that's you don't know. But except, there, there must have been a good community here. Yes, well, I think that's what's incredible about the Ugandan Asians is that there's just a mentality in the community that just meant, and perhaps because they'd already travelled from India to Uganda and set up a a fresh new life there, but there were loads of reports on the BBC about how they just brushed themselves down and just started again. And I just think that's kind of crazy and incredible at the same time. 
So my grandfather, he didn't want to live on government handouts because he was this very proud man. And he asked the first person that he could speak to about where he could get a job um, so that he could start to support his family. And this person said, I hear they're looking for lorry drivers at Scunthorpe Steelworks. (laughs) And so um, that's where I was born because he moved um, his family, my mum's family, to Scunthorpe. And they were- I've never been to Scunthorpe. I'm sure it's lovely, but it feels- it no, feels a it's bit cold and drizzly and, it, and industrial. It's very industrial. <laughs> industrial is the right word because, you know, the whole place revolves around the steelworks. And so he took off his beloved patent leather shoes and donned his steel toe cap boots and just started driving until he had enough money to be able to open a shop and and just uh, got going again. So that's that's wow. how we ended up in Lincolnshire. And in fact, they were the first Asian family to move into that area. And it was such big news that it was on the front page of the local paper. No. <laughs> yeah. that, so that isn't that long ago. That's, I just think that's amazing. So that was your so, granddad and back. your mum? It was my granddad, my grandma, and my mum, who was 16 at the time, and her two brothers. How brave of them. Wow. And how brave of them to move into an area that just didn't have a, a community there I know. for support. And, and then I'm thinking about the food. So was Ugandan Gujarati sort of different to Gujarati Gujarati, if you see what I mean? Yes. And so would you say the roots of your flavours, would you call it Ugandan Gujarati or...? or? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I would. It's Gujarati at the heart of it. The, yeah. the style of cooking is still very Gujarati. And so Gujarat is a state of... 60 million so roughly around the same population as the UK and the majority of the people who live there are vegetarian and it's been that way for centuries since an edict by Emperor Shaka in I don't know 262 BC I think that no animal must be killed after a particularly bloody war and so this cuisine is centuries old and so developed as this vegetable forward very creative very fresh way of eating And it's very seasonal. And if you think about Indian food, that's not how you would describe it in this country. It's usually meat-based and swimming in sauces and like very slow cooked. So Gujarati food is very different. It's very creative, I would say, because they've had to be so resourceful. It's quite a dry state. And so there's an ingredient that we use a lot, chickpea flour, and they've transformed it into a thousand different dishes, like from this gorgeous spongy bread called dokla to yeah. a beautiful pasta with wow. mustard seed seasoning which i love wow i've never had that no that sounds great like to your question about whether i'd call the food gujarati or ugandan indian like food changes when people mm. travel mm. and countries change and mm. the landscape changes and what grows around you is just different and so they just adapted their gujarati recipes to include mm. plantains and or kidney beans or whatever you know whatever was mm. growing and so there are very specific ugandan indian dishes how did your mum for example buy ingredients when you moved to lincolnshire mm. and you were the first gujarati family in the whole area you know like now there's shops where you can buy everything but back then Nothing. She just said we ate a lot of cauliflower and potatoes back then. (laughs) And then in terms of spices, they travelled to Leicester and there were Indian shops there. And then they relied on people who would fill suitcases full of spices to come over from India. And then they'd be portioned off to different people in the family. You know, fresh new season turmeric and things like that. I think it's slightly sad because like my brother Tom, who lives abroad, when you go and visit, he says, oh, can you bring some Marmite and some 
Chetley tea bags. It's like, we don't have anything quite as romantic as the bag, you know, as soon as full of spices and Black things. pudding was the last one. Oh, God. Yes, he loves That's black pudding. That's what he missed, yeah. black pudding. Yeah. That's interesting. Some horrible stuff that he And pork scratchings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what would you miss if you left this country? Nothing. Because I think one of the things about sort of Britishness is the way that we've kind of pillaged the rest of the world. So that all the things I love, like my big love is tea. So, you know... That's a kind of international thing, mm. isn't it? So it's not something a, a British thing. Well, I, do, I mean, but. I think tea bags and um, like I love Yorkshire tea. It's so strong, isn't it? Sometimes you get home from a long day and you're like, I just want a cup of really strong tea. Yeah, it feels really primal, but maybe it's just this. It's just learnt uh, comfort, isn't it? That tea is very comforting. A very strong tea. I do love the very posh teas too. I do. I do. Well, I was looking at doing a wine tasting course. So I was down at the wine tasting school yesterday and I found a good course for a bit of wine tasting. I want to find a good tea tasting course too because I think I'd quite like to develop the connection between taste buds and brain and Mm. be a bit more analytical about it. I don't know of a tea tasting course, but I do love, um, there's a shop in Covent Garden called Mariage du Frère. It's just at the back of our shop in, on Floral Street. Oh. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. What have they got, about 300 teas or something on their menu? But it's, it's so ridiculous. magical that you walk in and there's this tunnel <clears throat> of beautiful tins that you can, and I love that process where they open it and then you stick your nose in it and this, and you're just hit with like incredible yeah. smells. And I have become quite obsessed with like different versions of like Assam tea. And I fear because they're led by the seasons and they're very particular years that you might not be able to get the same flavour. But so then the thing would be to know what, to identify what Mm. flavours and aromas that you like and then how to sort of source it yourself, you know, rather than needing to... Yeah, be reliant on. Yeah, because obviously with wine, you know, a a nice wine's grown and then there's a year and then it's gone. But if you could learn what you liked about that wine, then you could look for it elsewhere in another year. Yeah, I I think so. But it just feels so complicated, like all the conditions. Yeah, but you must have a highly developed sense of mouth to brain. I do have that, I think, with cooking. But it had to start with, like, knowing my ingredients. And so... Over a period of time, I've got to understand, let's say, spices and, you know, what what cumin and coriander do in a dish, for example. And cumin has these deep, earthy tones, a bit of sort of fresh sweat, a bit, you know, (laughs) a bit of toast. I sort of understand those flavours and I understand coriander, which is one of my favourite spices because it's so happy. The smell is so, it's very citrusy and lemony and wonderful. Both leaf and seed? Seed. Yeah. Leaves more herbal, but the seed is magnificent. And I really urge um, anybody who's listening to this to please go and stick your nose in like a bag of coriander seeds to see what I'm talking about. But once you sort of understand those flavour notes of those two different spices, mm. then I know that when I, I'm trying to create a dish that I can pair them together, that there's yin and yang, and then what they'll do and what they'll do when I put them in at the start and how, they, how they'll end up when I've cooked them. And I so I suppose that's a sort of developed thing. And then when I get inspiration, I'm trying to create something, I can call on all these different ingredients that you know really well, because it's just an enormous toolkit, and then just throw together into a bag, like exactly what you're looking for and sort of conjure something up. So that's really interesting, because I think I can sort of really identify a lot of that with jewellery making, Yeah, is, is having this long and in-depth technical training Mm. so that if if I'm making an elephant or something I know exactly what tools and what process would be most elephant-like because with an elephant you you know you're trying to portray that solidness and the texture of the skin against the solidness 
and there's only one way. So if you carve something out of a block, it looks different than if you construct it using various pieces. So for example, if I was to say a sort of jellyfish shape, if you were to cut jellyfish legs and, and then solder them all together, it would be different from carving it out of a block of silver, which is different from carving it out of a block of wax. So all these, all these different processes you learn have different feels to mm -hmm. them and kind of conjure different images. That's what I'm hearing with you, you're saying with the food is, is know your, what all these things do. Yes. And then you can play, once you've got that skill, you can play with them to create a final object that says what you want to say, that has your original idea in it. Exactly that. But the, yeah, so the second bit is exactly what you started off by saying, which is that I need, like the clearer the image that I have in my head about what I'm trying to create, the better I can use the stuff that I know to be able to, the ingredients that I know really well yeah. to be able to create it. But I've realized over the years with cooking, the stronger the idea and that sort of taste in my mouth that I know that I'm going for, the easier it is to be able to get there. Because I used to cook in a much more chaotic way where I was just chucking stuff into a pan and sort of seeing what seeing what yeah. happened. And then that was also fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can create some really glorious things that way. But it's strange. Now I have like a hit rate and usually I can, if I can imagine it really strongly and I've got the, then I can usually get there first time round. And Sometimes it takes me a bit longer with some um, areas of cooking that I'm not as strong at. So yeah. baking, for example, the banana cake that I've baked for you both today. I mean, it was a practically impossible cake because it's gluten-free and vegan. So imagine taking all the eggs and dairy and flour Just <laughs> and butter. <laughs> it's basically a banana. <laughs> it is. <laughs> not from my own banana tree, though. really loved when you were talking when you were particularly saying about coriander is that it's it you, you used the term happy and that I really like that's a really yeah. good way of so that, that's that's not a word is it that you'd use if, if you were talking about flavor you, you might not use the word happy mm. but i think i do when i'm making jewelry i think i use words that other people think well hang on that isn't a jewelry word but I, I, happy totally sums it up and sometimes when you're cooking um you, you might want something sort of slow and smoky and slightly, you know, if, if you were on an early date with a partner or something and, you know, I, mean, I say early in a relationship, not early in the evening, you might want to do something a little bit more sort of smouldering and yeah. lingering and with a bit more depth and passion in it. And, yeah. and then if you were out for us doing something different, like having friends around for lunch and the kids, you might want something really fun and quick and and zingy and zesty and happy or you know so you, yeah you would use different words to describe how you would like a mood of food yeah. that you're looking for yeah yeah for sure um yeah let's not get the you don't want to give the smoldering thing to the wrong person <laughs> <laughs> well um, don't forget like mine always go wrong because i'm still at that stage where i just sort of chuck things together and then and then the thing that comes out. I'm oh, quite that's, ambitious. That's but, fun though, isn't it? Do you... Yeah, but I'd like to learn one. I'd like to know what. You're usually quite, the, there have been a couple of meals that we, and we're like, mmm, so good. <laughs> and it's just like every fan of spice is just like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that's kind of how you have to start though, isn't it? I created some really awful stuff, um, um, you know, sort of learning. And it's, 
that's just, it's just how it, it's just how how it yeah. works. And it sounds like from um, listening to you talk about your creative process that you um, are like super analytical about um, like you want to know how things behave, like have like a system of things underpinning how you work. Which is- so I really like the, I really like the, I like making things. Mm-hmm. So that's me. I like making yeah. things, and I've got a feeling that you do too. Mm. And so, as much as anything, the joy is in the process of making yes. it. Yeah. Um, and part uh, of that is the understanding of yeah, all the things that can, the skills. Yeah. And stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shall we look at? Because the trouble with me is I rabbit on, and then we time flies. To look at the and then, shall, shall we start with the jewelry? Because I know. So Mira sent some. Some Mira's been. Mira's been top guest because she sent amazing photos and really fun descriptions of all the pieces. And also the pieces are so brilliant. Mira, for me, that's you on the table there. So it's so exciting to see. Where should we start? With Jemima. Let's start with Jemima. So um, I'm so excited to talk to you about these pieces. I'm I'm really thrilled that you have this podcast and um, I can share these with you. So Jemima was my first love. So this is a brooch that I'm holding and it's an enamel brooch and it's probably about a couple of centimetres high and it just looks like Jemima Puddle Duck straight off the front of a Beatrix Potter book. I just really love this little brooch and I love it very deeply. I was allowed to pick one thing from the Beatrix Potter shop when I went there when I was four years old um, in Windermere. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, okay. And I just have really strong memories about this family holiday I really fell in love with the Lake District. I loved how green it was. Um, I love the name of all the places around mm. there, like mm. Buttermere, what a gorgeous mm. name. And Grassmere, where they have those um, fabulous ginger biscuits. Do yeah. you know the ones I'm talking about? I just about? love it up there, definitely. Yeah, that's what it felt like to mm. me, just this imaginary land, which is really beautiful. And I love Beatrix Potter books too. And so I picked this brooch and it was it was the first sort of precious bit of treasure that I owned and that was mm. really mine. And... I pinned it onto various coats and I carried it around and it was like, you know, it was real treasure. And I think that's part of why I love it so much. It was lost in a, in this box that I have to the side for maybe a, a decade and a half. And so we thought, I thought it was gone. And when I yeah. found it again, it, it was the thing that I was most excited to see because I think I was holding it in my hands when I was four and I loved it so deeply. And so when I saw it again, I just felt this like indescribable joy and my lungs just fill with air because I just must have loved it so much. Was it like literally thought you were that young, thought you chose it when you were really tiny, teeny young, four or five, something like that. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's a very good choice. For Thank you. <laughs> and how gorgeous, of, I really would never have let you choose something and it's nice not, like that. It looks like you could have bought it last week. Can I have a look? You may. I've got my glasses, on see. I really like that. So it's classic Jemima Puddle Duck. So the duck is enameled in white and the beak and feet are metal and gold. But the red and the blue have a translucent enamel on and you can see all the patterns underneath, which sort of makes it sort of reflect the light, makes it slightly iridescent or something. But um, that is so cute. That's so sweet. It's quite, it's a nice size too, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. My daughter is four and... um, she likes looking at my jewellery box, but this is the one thing that she gravitates towards. She's, mm. she's not as fussed by the gold and all the other bits and pieces. That's the thing that she wants to look at and play with. Those things are like so magic. I remember, you know, I was probably older, so probably sort of eight or so, and I think we went to the Norfolk Broads, and then I'd saved up my pocket money, but you sort of had to be allowed to spend your pocket money, if you see what I mean. And I bought a pen knife, which I lost. But I remember that object being 
like, oh my God, this is something of your own. It's something quite special, isn't it? Yes, to, I agree. To actually have something that's yours. It's not something that you borrow someone else. It's like really, really special time in your life. That first mm. transition where you own something precious and, mm. and beautifully made and with lovely patterns and colours on it and things. Um, that's so sweet. Yeah, and, and maybe where you've got autonomy over something as well. Like we've been very lucky to have been given a lot of nice jewellery, but there's just something nice about choosing something of your of your very own. And you know how important treasure is when you're a child. So I love the way that you say how you felt when you rediscovered it. You needed something to hold on to, and you almost sort of squeeze it in your hand, and then it and then it kind of transports you. And you remember those feelings and, and emotions, and you remember family and things. But you almost needed the object to, yes. to transport you there. Somehow, and people do often say, don't they? Well, it's only a, it's only a thing, you know. As long mm. as you've got the memories, that's mm. right. But actually, I have to need that thing, thing to, yes. to zoom me back. And I totally agree. I feel like it's um, you know it's a portal back yeah. to, to this simple, joyful time where I was surrounded by you know parents that you know just love you unconditionally, and that life was just very simple yeah. and uh, wonderful. So I'm pretty sure that's part of it because it's not like aesthetically speaking, Jemima's beautiful. But I probably wouldn't pin her onto my coat these days. You know, it's not like a piece that I'm going to wear right now. But she's just very meaningful to me. I love those books. But when I had kids, I tried to read them. And I found them really hard to read oh. out loud. I kind of struggled with the with the Beatrix Potter. Mm. You know, you loved all the characters, didn't you? But Yeah. The book now is very, I wouldn't say it's dated, but it's um, it's quite cruel. The Jemima Puddleduck story. Quite a lot of the Beatrix Potter stories are mm. quite cruel, aren't they? Mm. Well, rabbits are always getting... Put in the pot by the floor, aren't they? And How stuff. terrifying is that? <laughs> little kids, and Jemima, yeah. she, she gets rescued, doesn't she? There's a fox that tries to manipulate mm, her, mm. and then it's she's a bit sinister, yeah, really sinister. Mm. And she's trying to have her baby duckling somewhere gets rescued by a dog. A dog is a collie, isn't it? Do you remember how it ends though? Because her eggs are eaten, so she gets rescued, but then. She has the fox, to give it. The fox got the eggs, or, or no? The dog got the eggs. Oh, no, the fox, the dog that we thought was being all nice. What a twist, hey? Yeah. I don't yeah. remember that. Genius. That's lovely. Anyway. Okay, so let's move on to the next piece because you've got some lovely pieces here. So the second piece that I wanted to tell you about is my Rudruksha bead. And so this is, it's a bead that's about a centimetre in diameter and it's quite knobbly. I mean, what does it look like to you? The it inside looks like a... it's been carved actually, but but yeah. it hasn't. It almost looks like a like a miniature walnut. Yes. Uh, you know, if, yeah. if you put the whole walnut together, it's, yeah. it's knobbly, but it's got this gorgeous deep red cinnamon maybe that's not the right word, colour to it. And it and has I'm... these five segments. I yeah. don't know if you can see those. Yeah. But that's actually quite important. Those are called muki. And so this bead is used a lot in meditations when people are like saying their mantras. Mm. And the five muki correspond to, I think, Lord Shiva. So I'm not a very religious person. I'm a real part-time Hindu. But um, my grandma gave this little seed to me and it's flanked in gold. And she's given me a couple of pieces over the years. But what I love about this piece is that she chose it for me. 
And so there was a real intention behind it. And and I wore it, you know, every day until the chain that it was on broke, unfortunately. I'm not prone to anxiety attacks, but I sort of would notice that if I felt a bit uncomfortable about something, I found myself sort of going to it and touching it and feeling very grounded. Perhaps it's because it's like a wooden-ish seed and so it has that nice warmth to it or because it's quite textural and you can touch it or or maybe it's the mystical powers that <laughs> the Hindus believe well, that they have. It could be a combination of all three and it also could be, again, that thing we were talking about with the Chiron Puddle, is it could transport you back with your grandmother by mm-hmm. your side and if she yeah. was a calming figure, you've sort of got her there yeah. just to calm things down. I didn't realise that it's got these cute little gold balls hanging off the bottom and also I guess the texture is quite nice because you can sort of feel the texture coming mm. so it does feel nice do you need a new chain for it would you like us to fix this for you we can do that oh for you. I would love that thank um, you whenever you fix a chain you always have to tell people just to be careful like only wear it around the house for a while just to make sure that it's nice and strong Solid. and then yeah um, yeah we'll do that we'll fix that oh, and then you. and then we'll and that'll just slip on so we don't need to take yes it doesn't fit on this one yeah that'll just slip on We've got these great machines, it's called a puck machine, and it's like a little mini um, welder. And so you have to look through a microscope and then you hold it up and it does this little puck and it welds chains. It's perfect for this sort of job. I'm really curious Just about that. your machinery and your tools. Well, yeah, you know, so, come so special. definitely come <laughs> for a tour. Please. And then if we can do jewellery school, well, that you can yes. come to. That would, that would be really good fun. I'd love it. Super. That's a great piece. Let's have another piece. So this is my third piece. My, this is a very, very special piece. This is my Mangal Sutra. Uh, Mangal Sutra means auspicious thread in Hindi. And this comprises of a pendant and a chain. And the pendant I fell in love with in India. And I went to India, not for the first time, but for the longest period of time with Hugh, my husband. But we weren't married at the time. And we were just having dinner one night many years ago when we said what are we doing with our lives? And I don't mean in an existential way. Um, I just mean that we realised that we'd been working for a few years and that we really wanted to live a bit and explore. So we both took a sabbatical from our respective jobs and we just took off. And we travelled around India for three months and it was the most beautiful, eye-opening experience. Like it still breathes life into my dates now and that was many years ago wow i've Um, never been to india so i'm very jealous and it's something i've got mm. to fix because it just sounds brilliant it's so varied and wonderful and i i think you probably would love it especially from a jewelry perspective because there's so much magic and skill um and gorgeousness over there i mean we became so much closer on this trip we were just dating at the time Mm. And so we got to Mangalore and um, we went into a jewellery shop and we bought this pendant. And so it's a golden coral pendant. It's um, a couple of centimetres long. It's quite geometric. The reason why I love it is because it just looked really not typically Indian to me. And that's because Mm. the South Indian style is nothing like the North or the West Indian Mm. style of jewellery. It does feel a lot more geometric and a lot more, I don't know, almost like the Incas might have made Mm. it. Yeah, totally. And I adore it. We got back to the UK he proposed and we got married. And I hadn't realised at the time that the pendant is the Mangal Sutra. And so it then became part of our wedding ceremony. And so he bought this gold chain, which is a very traditional gold chain. So it's glass 
and gold beads together. Was it part of the ceremony? It wasn't just something you wore. So how does that so, work? Did you have like a hybrid ceremony? The marriage ceremony can go on for days and days and days. Yeah. But we, we squeezed it into a 45 minute process. We got married in <laughs> Kew Gardens and it was delightful. I can't remember specifically which bit because it, a lot of it was in um, Sanskrit. But at some point we you know, sort of declared our dedication to each other. And Hugh put this around my neck. And the tying of it sort of is this, it's the same thing as putting a ring on, on your partner. It's the equivalent. And yeah. it's also sort of outwardly signifies that I'm married and additionally is meant to protect me from evil forces by wearing it. Sounds like the necklace found you, <laughs> didn't it? It's, it's funny how things, I mean, that, that's a really romantic story, but it's kind of also, it always makes me think twice, doesn't it? Like, that you gravitated towards this necklace when you were going through this process of growing together as individuals and as a couple when you were away on your holiday. And then it all turns out to be just exactly the right thing. So, yeah, I yeah. think these threads are blessed, pre-blessed before you buy them from the shop. Aww. And then they become, they are blessed again when you're, when you're getting married. I believe that's true because this is a very specific wedding thread that goes, you know, with a mango sutra. If you look at Indian women when you're passing them in the street yeah. and you see that, you know, that signifies marriage and Hey, now we know. And so did, did your husband or boyfriend at the time, did he know that when you bought it together or was it just very certain? No, we didn't. We didn't know at all. You know, in South India, I mean, they do speak Hindi there, but my Hindi's not great. My Gujarati's not great. I bought it because it was a beautiful pendant. It was yeah. only when I yeah. came back here that I, don't, I can't remember how it came up, actually. I think one of my aunts might have mentioned it or I don't know. I found out in some way that I don't yeah. really remember how, but that it was actually, you know, meant to be part of a wedding necklace. And wedding jewellery is a whole big thing in India. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. It's big. You know, people take out enormous loans to buy this jewellery and it's like part of the dowry. And I mean, it does all the things, signifies status and wealth. And because Indians don't see gold as just gold, they, it's the most solid form of investment there is. Totally. Because totally. the currency's fluctuated, the governments have fluctuated. It's very tradable. And obviously the price has gone up over the years as well. So From my travels in Pakistan, it was a length to which the jewellers turned this wealth into ornament which was staggering i mean you know because it was weighed you know when you get married it, it's x amount of weight of gold that yes. cuts the, so you think well why don't you just have have a gold bar wouldn't that mm. be easy but it's the craftsmanship that goes into making these spectacular pieces is just extraordinary there's much more to it than just the weight of the gold, isn't there? But yes. it's still a weird process. I didn't quite get my head around it. What I think is incredible is that when I was growing up and I spent a lot of time in and around Belgrave Road in Leicester, mm. it's called the Golden Mile. There's so many jewellers there and sari shops and we, you know, we sort of danced from one to the other. But when we went into the jewellery shops, you know, I'd go with my aunt and my grandma and my mum. They never bought jewellery just because it was beautiful. I mean, that yeah. was definitely part of it. But you would ask about the price. There'd be like gold prices fluctuating in the background on one yeah. of those digital screens. And you talk about it in terms of like weight and labour. And it's a 50-50 split in terms right. of how they cost it up. Right. The gold cost is this, the labour cost is this. Yeah. And that's what it is right now. Come back next week, it's going to be different. And it was really strange for me to get my head around very beautifully produced jewellery, but with no value mm. like no tradable value mm. to it because in india it doesn't really exist you either get pure gold and pure gems or you get the stuff that you buy for like i don't know 10 rupees in the market yeah. there is no middle ground of jewelry no, which and that's my bit where the jewelry is made purely because of what it looks like and what it means to you but i use nice materials because i want to use nice materials but it's never really bought as in on that level as, as a sort of investment so yeah we are much heavier on the 
on the sort of craftsmanship and design and things. Yes. And then the materials are much You know, there's so many reasons to love that too, just for the pure creativity of it and the pleasure of it and the mm. affordability of it as well. You know, it mm. gives some... And, and also, it doesn't mean that it doesn't last through the generations. No, absolutely. I mean, it's still an heirloom. It's, yeah. it's just this fascinating approach. And I think it's because we've had so many generations now of privilege where jewellery no longer needs to yes. represent value or investment. That's Connie just going to the It's really good. You love the mint tea. <laughs> that is brilliant. Yeah, so, uh, so um, that's me just going to the loop. Um, <laughs> I think India would be would be so fun to try and travel around and eat the food and learn about the spices and all the rest of it. Because and the other nice thing, which I loved, was the markets where you go buying. I mean, they had these in Pakistan, these mm. amazing markets where you just have piles of amazing coloured. <sighs> Spices and whatever it is. The colours are just brilliant. The colours, but also they defy, um, like, I don't know, physics, don't they? Some yeah. of them, like, piles yeah. of spices, yeah. real <laughs> towers. Like, how do they do that? And it doesn't look natural. Like, the colours are too, too vibrant. Yes, like, yes. So maybe color, they're not, maybe they are artificially coloured. <laughs> Certainly India seems more colourful than a lot of the UK. I don't know if that's true. It, it, it is. It is. It's a sunnier country. Um, you know, people wear bright colours. It's really, it's really noticeable when you, you come into Heathrow from a, you know, after you've been in Mumbai for a little while, and you're used to everyone wearing such like, like hot pink, yeah, and like you know, canary yellow and beautiful greens of all different shades, and you get back to Heathrow and it's just all greys and blacks and. I don't know if it's a mood thing, or if it's a fabric thing, or if it's a weather thing, or if it's a cultural thing, or all of those things yeah. together. But it is a real shame, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. it, it really lifts the mood. I keep, the to, I keep trying to wear colours, and then and then I end up in sort of navy blue and green, you know, as usual. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm now we need to move on because this is the really exciting. Well, I mean, they're all really exciting, but this ring is. I was so interested <gasps> to see it for real. So this can I take a photo of it? Yes, we of can talk about it. It's just amazing. Wow. The colours. So I have my um, notebooks as well from when I was in India when I was designing. Wow! It, um, Look at this. Oh, they're so lovely. So you've got all your little notebooks and it's got little drawings and descriptions. That looks a bit like one of my sketchbooks. That's fantastic. <laughs> so um, this is my Navratna ring. Navratna means nine jewels is a very classic combination of jewels because each of these stones represents a planet and Indians are very keen on the idea that you have you know you've got a composition of planets that are either good mm. for you or bad for you and they can influence your behavior uh, through energy vibrations mm. you can be prescribed a stone to wear to bring the right sort of energy into your life depending on what you might be lacking or what you need more of mm. and I am obsessed with this idea uh, I think it's wonderful why would you not want to encourage all of this positivity yeah. well I live in Brighton and it's like a very big thing over there I've got a crystal I didn't bring with me today actually but I do take it most places mm. it will help balance I think it's to like help like clear your mind mm -hmm. when things get overwhelming so you'd remember if you were wearing it your mind I know maybe that's it <laughs> damn <laughs> anyway such yeah. a beautiful ring that yeah so it's quite chunky isn't it 
It is quite chunky. And um, so, yeah, I wanted to design a ring with um, with nine stones. So I bought the nine stones. And then when I was in Mumbai researching food, I just had some downtime in between sort of mm. eating. You can't eat nonstop 24-7. Try. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just in a hotel room just designing. How could I make a ring with these stones? And so here are the notebooks that I have, different sort of formations, different sizes. And I wanted it to be, have that feel that a pound coin does. You know, mm. it's got a very special weight to yeah. it and a very special feel that nothing else that I've come across has. And so that was part of the design. And then the jewel that I worked with, we did do a couple of these configurations based on the size of the stones that it made. And we decided that the sort of uniform mm. way of positioning these stones. They're great drawings though. That looks like a, that really looks like a jeweler's sketchbook because you're kind of exploring with ideas and different shaped stones in different positions and you're just sort of doodling so those drawings aren't for anyone else to look at as far as I can see I just think it's great I love sketchbooks it's fun and the reason why I wanted to show it to you is because I just love the process and I get itchy feet quite regularly Mm. to create different things and often I don't really know how I bumped into a jeweler we struck up a great relationship we're great friends now And he said he could make this for me. And I just had great fun sort of trying to figure out how, like understanding how he uses his tools. And also from like the Hindi sort of understanding, from the astrological point of view, what do each of these stones mean? And, you know, like the ruby, for example, links to wisdom, the emerald, intellect and wealth, the sapphire represents clarity, the hessonite shields against depression. And I mean... God, I mean, I'm sorted for life by wearing this. (laughs) Who's the lovely jeweler who made it? Because we should give them a shout on the, you know, we we can put details there because we like nice jewellers. His name is Kapil Malhotra. Yes, and he's a a gemologist. um, And, you know, he would, he'd switch the lights off at lunchtime so that people thought the shop was closed and all Indians sort of do this. Switch a little light on at the back. And he'd he'd take away his jewellery table and put out his tiffin and he'd share his tiffin with me. And we'd just chat about gems, jewels and gold and eat his home-cooked food. Because Tiffin's are, it's a lunchbox, usually cylindrical lunchbox that's sort of stacked. And in Mumbai, like a quarter of a million get delivered from homes to businesses uh, every day because they really love home cooking more than restaurant cooking. Mm. And so they wouldn't go out to like an equivalent of Pret to go and get lunch. They'd be delivered their home-cooked food. And then these Tiffin's are delivered back um, by these uh, Tiffin wallets, the cyclists, and you see them you know, they're like white rabbits. They just disappear. They're really, really fast. That's so nice. So what's interesting is, is it's a really quite chunky piece of gold. And it's kind of rectangular in section. So it's, you know, but it's got a nice sort of handmade feel to it. And the stones are set with this amazing pave setting. So what you do is you is you set the stone into the metal. You have to kind of bring the metal almost as if you were pushing clay over the stone to hold it and then smooth it all off so it just looks like they're held in there by magic. There are various ways of fitting stones into metal. One would be to raise a claw. So if if you'll see little claws, an engraver raises a grain of metal and then you can push that over and it holds the stone in. But this is done in this amazing parve way, which I can't do because you've got to be really clever to do it. And some of these stones are really soft. So if you imagine you're pushing... Right. Really hard metal over. If you yeah. push too hard, it'll just crack the stone. Is what I always love doing. Wow, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, so it's really skill, um, and, and you have to be really careful how you do it. So, um, or they fall out. Or they fall out, um, and and you can measure something up like a pearl. A pearl is soft as anything, yeah. and so if you push too much, you'll crush it. If you push too little, yeah. um, it can come out. So nicely done, nicely made. 
I like that. And I love your drawings. You're definitely a, a jewellery designer. Oh, thank you. So the other notebook that I had was, because uh, I was looking for it last night, my drawings, and I went to go and see an astrologer for a prescription and I just thought it was so fun. And so I just thought I'd tell you about this just yeah, because please. I find it really yeah. fascinating. And so she said that the carrot and weight of the gem that you're prescribed must be in proportion to your body weight for it to work. <laughs> And you need careful analysis so you don't end up wearing the wrong stone. She said emerald is a cooling stone and that is good in some ways, but it might bring down your sexuality. And coral can ignite anger, so be careful of wearing too much coral. Uh, She said blue sapphire is not conducive for you. Did she say why? Or is it just not... I, I, was, think, I think the little one, you'll be right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she didn't say why. She said occasionally is no problem, but don't wear it every day. <laughs> and she said the energy of the stone vibrates with the planet, and each planet has a stone that it represents. We know that they do that because they invented quartz watches, which took the atomic vibration of quartz, I think, and was a thousand times more accurate than normal watch movements. So that's actually a scientific thing. Um, but God, we did again, Google. Help me, know. Google. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to have to Google quartz watches. But I think um, it was discovered that that minerals have a, have a sort of a atomic level vibration, which you can then use to mark passage of time. And they're all different. So I think there's definitely some true things she's saying. I th- I'd love to go and see an astrologist and I do really like that kind of thing and it's just quite nice even though it's not you know people don't believe it I don't see why it's you wouldn't think, listen like I don't I think, think it matters whether people, other people believe in it I really it's enjoy what, when I have my crystals for you isn't it I just enjoy knowing that they're there yes they've got a talismanic property to them yeah. Yeah. yeah yes I think that's why I like them too because they have a story attached to them and and you can believe in that story when mm. you're walking around every day. Mm. Like for me, it's quite nice to see this because it's a stake in the ground. Every now and then I go back to the notes and just see, was it total BS or was she? Yeah. <laughs> Does something you, happen? Can I just ask it? So I just live off sketchbooks. So I just doodle all the time. And a lot of them are full of writing with all my ideas and thoughts about things are going to do. Is that how you work as well? Do you just have notebooks? And is that how you work with your cooking? And hmm. So a lot of the recipes that I write, I like them to be plugged into real recipes that people cook for themselves in their homes, mostly in Southeast Asia. And so when I'm there, it's all notebooks because I can just... I mean, you should see my writing, though. I couldn't love do it. it all the time because its I can't even read my no, own No, I love writing. it. It's proper scrappy. And it it's just proper shows scrappy. that it's, you're, you're, you're just throwing ideas down onto a page and, and it's for you and for you alone. And Yeah, so I haven't learned to do sort of shorthand. So that's what happens when I'm away. I keep notebooks for all the countries that I travel to yeah. and then what I learn. And they're, they're just full of recipes. And when I'm in the kitchen, it makes much more sense for me to work on a computer. The keys have just rubbed off because, you know, of all the lemon juice or something. Yeah. <laughs> But when I'm writing a recipe down, I, you know, I'm just, I'm typing it up as I go so that I don't lose anything. Yeah. I record the timings, I record how things look like, I record how it tastes like across the process. Mm. And, and I feel like just like going on a wine course, you build up like little tiny bits of knowledge about mm. different things. You, you can see where things went wrong and what was right about it up until when. And I'm quite meticulous with that sort of I thing. I feel like that one life isn't really long enough because I still feel like I'm beginning my learning and it's like, Kind of, if I had about three lifetimes, I think I might get there in the end. It just feels like there's so much to do and so much to learn and so much to experiment with. 
And it all zooms past too quick. So It's true, isn't it? I feel that way too. I um, I learned the other day that we have 4,000 weeks on Earth on average. Oh, no. I know. Doesn't that sound short? No, because no. I just waste How so many, many of you them. Had? We should figure that out. Figure that out on the we'll do on the it. You can borrow my phone <laughs> and do something. Um, I think we should say thank you very much, Mira. That has been brilliant. What I like about the jewellery is that... I really love it when people's jewellery seems to completely reflect them. So we've got lovely childhood and we've got your gran and we've got your travels in India and we've got your love and marriage and just, you know, I think Jemima obviously brings your parents in. It's just everything seems to be there on those few pieces, which is really lovely. So that's been a real treat. Thanks, Mira. The problem is I can stay here all day and then it'll be starting to get dark. Actually, we've got a parking slot as well that we can't overstay our exactly. welcome on. Exactly. So thank you so much, Marisota, oh, for being a guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com. Music